beginning in verse 19. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. All right. Well, as they make their way that way, uh, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of John. And uh, just so you know, we will, Lord willing, finish up chapter 20 this morning. And we'll have two more times in the Gospel of John together. You're supposed to go, aww. How sad, right? Well, for my own personal soul, it's been a, a, an adventure and, and a and challenge and also a great sense of source of joy to preach through this amazing gospel um, that God gave us through the Apostle John. And um, the title of our message this morning is Sent Ones. Sent Ones. And let's, let's, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us receive his word in a proper way this morning. Lord, we pray that you would do what only you could do. And that is to take your word and plant it deep within our hearts and change us from it. Lord, uh, we are not seeking to be um, better informed, but to be transformed by the renew of our mind so that we might do what is pleasing in your sight, your perfect will. Lord, may that happen in each of our hearts today, individually and collectively, as your body. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, as one who serves in the role of a pastor, um, I, I get many questions. Some of them are very interesting, uh, depending on who's asking. Somebody out in the community sometimes, oh, you're a pastor, let me ask you this question. And uh, I get questions from you all and other believers, and uh, many of those questions have to do with creation, um, your family, maybe marriage, uh, current events in the world. What's my take on the current events in the world and what does the Bible have to say about that? Um, lots of questions. But there's one question that stands above all the rest that's asked to me more often than any other question. And that is this. What is God's will for my life? You ever asked that question to someone or maybe even uh, had someone ask you that question? Or maybe you just asked it to yourself, well, I wonder what God's will is for me. My guess is we've all asked that question. It's, it's, it's not a bad question. It's actually a good question. And maybe we should ask the question more than once. And maybe you have asked the question more than once regarding the same particular thing you're thinking about or something different, but hopefully it's a question we do ask. And uh, most often this question has to do with what, when people ask me this question, they have to, has to do with what God wants a person to be doing in 5 and 10 and 15 years from now. What's God's will for my life? I want to know what, where I'm going to be in 5, 10, 15 years. And I've had that question asked to me many times. Uh, where do you see yourself in five years or ten years and fifteen years? And I'm just kind of concerned about the next five minutes, really. And uh, to think that far ahead is really difficult for me. And, and, and I don't know really where I see myself. Um, but, but usually it, it, that's, it has to do with, you know, who you're going to marry. And, um, and I'm not pointing out any particular people in here asking that question or anything like that or what their occupation should be. And I've had these conversations within our church. Um, but, but I really believe those are all secondary issues when it comes to God's will. Now, don't hear me saying they're not important, but I think they're secondary issues. They're not the most important thing. And I also believe that the Bible presents God's will for our lives as something very clear, not something mysterious and confusing or something God's trying to hide from us. Uh, I've seen books, even their titles almost suggest that God's trying to hide his will from us. 
I don't think that at all. I think God wants to reveal his will, and I think it's very clear what his will is for those who know him. Uh, bottom line is those who are followers of Jesus, God has made his will very clear for us. And we won't miss it in this passage. But we are sent ones. We are ones who are sent out. That's God's will for our lives. Simply put. And if we understand that God's will is that we are sent ones, that he sends us out by his grace, and we obey that by going, then all those other things take care of themselves. Do you know that? We can get caught up in all the little details over here and, and be concerned about God's will for this, this, and this, and this, and we'll miss the big picture, and we won't get that right either because we're co so concerned about the little things. And what I want to tell people often about God's will is this. If you'll focus on being in God's will today as one who he has sent out into this world to be an ambassador for Christ, if you'll focus on obeying him in that today, guess what? You'll be right where God wants you to be tomorrow. And if you'll focus on that tomorrow, you'll be right where he wants you to be the next day. And if you'll focus on that next week, you'll be right where he wants you to be the next week. And if you focus on that this year, guess what you'll be next year? Same place. And guess where you'll be in five years? You'll be in God's will. And ten years, you'll be in God's will if the focus becomes, I'm sent as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. That's my will. That's God's will for me. And when we make that the main thing, all those other things take care of themselves. And I think you'll see that here in this passage. I think that you'll see as he speaks to his original disciples um, that his charge to them is not, okay, here's seven steps on how to figure out who you're going to marry and what job I want you to have. And I'm not saying he didn't care about those things or where you're supposed to be next week or where you're supposed to go on vacation or where your kid's supposed to go to school or whatever, where your, where your long-term health care for your aging parents is supposed to be. I'm not saying those are not important, but he doesn't list any of those things. In fact, Jesus doesn't list any of those things in any of his Great Commission passages. He just says you're sent. If you'll be focused on being sent, then I'll take care of all that, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. It's good news. So let's look at this passage here in John 20, and once again, we're going to walk through it, then we're going to come back and kind of look at the, 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 the implications uh, that we need to obey to apply in our life. Um, again, let's think about the context where we were last week at the beginning of chapter 12, 20. Uh, Jesus rose from the grave early on Sunday morning, and uh, Mary goes to the tomb and finds the tomb empty. She runs and tells uh, John and Peter, and they run back to the tomb. And, of course, John's a lot faster than Peter. He beats him to the tomb. Now, remember, if you were here last week, the only reason it says that he's younger. I mean, John's just younger than Peter. That's the only, I don't think he's trying to boast that he's faster, and we saw that later because he gets there and doesn't go in. Peter gets there and goes right in. Is John chicken? You know, he's not trying to boast about himself. He's just, just, this is what happened. He's just telling what happened. They get there. They see that the grave clothes are, are, are there, that Jesus really had, had, had risen, that the grave clothes were there. And, and so they go home, and Mary goes back, and she sees the risen Christ, and he tells her to go and tell the disciples, and she goes and tells the disciples that she had seen the risen Lord. So that's where we pick up this morning in verse 19. Look with me in verse 19 there in chapter 20. So when it was the evening on that day, the first day of the week, 
And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Well, it's obviously Sunday evening here. On the same day when Mary just seen the Lord, uh, Peter and John saw the empty tomb. We read from the other Gospels, like in, in Luke 24, that two, uh, two disciples were, we don't know exactly who they were. One of them gives one person's name, Cloopus, but we don't know who the other person was. They're walking with the Lord on the road to Emmaus, and he's explaining who he was from the Scripture, and they don't see it. To the, he doesn't reveal himself to the very end of their conversation. So some other people saw Jesus on that day before this happened. Uh, some of the other Gospels speak about a couple of other women that, that saw Jesus. Um, uh, but John chooses, as John often does, to focus on one aspect, one group of people. Often we've seen him just fo- focus on one person, right? That's a big thing with John is people and how do people respond to who Jesus is. And here it's a certain group of people and he, he, he turns himself to these men that are gathered together in this room in Jerusalem. Most likely the 12 minus Judas, of course, and we'll see also minus Thomas, but he'll show up later in our passage. And notice that the doors were shut. Um, uh, this free phrase is here for two reasons, that the doors were shut. One is to point out that they were fearful. And it says there they were fearful of Jews. Uh, why wouldn't they hide, right? They just killed their leader, the Jews had. And why wouldn't they be the next ones to keep from this insurrection coming up and, and making a big mess for all the Jewish people who were under the authority of Rome at the time? Uh, so they, they kind of had a right to be uh, fearful. Uh, and, and it's amazing if you think about that. These men who are so fearful, they're hiding out after the cross and, and even the resurrection. Some of them had even seen the empty tomb. One of the Gospels insinuates that Peter had even seen the risen Lord before this point. But he's still part of this group and he's hiding out. That, that, that God is going to use this group of fearful men to change the world. You know, that gives me a lot of hope. It should all of us. Because often I'm a fearful and weak man. And God will use fearful and weak and unqualified men and women to change the world if we'll let him. That that should encourage all of us. Secondly, this this phrase here that the doors were shut um, uh, uh, is followed. The reason it's here is it's followed by this phrase, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And it's to show that Jesus' body, body, or resurrected body is not inhibited by physical things. Just think that it, the way the grave clothes we saw this last week were laying there, he just passed right through them. They, just, they were just laying there where he was, kind of the way they were laying. You could see he didn't roll them all up and fold them or throw them off. They just passed right through them. And here the doors are shut and he appears in the room. Um, I've heard people say, well, it doesn't say he passed through the wall. Uh, but he could have done anything he wanted, Right? It's to show that Jesus is not inhibited by those things that are physical. They don't keep him out. When they want to keep everybody else out, they can't keep Jesus out. Because he's not taken aback by the things that are physical. And uh, uh, notice what Jesus says to them. He says, peace be with you. Now, of course, this is a common Jewish greeting. Uh, Shalom means peace or peace be with you. But here... I think it means that. I'm not saying it doesn't mean that, but I think it means way more to the disciples here in this context. And I think the context, not only of this passage, but all of John, dictates that it's more than just a casual greeting. All right, so um, the last words of Jesus on the cross were what? In John, what does he say? It is finished. It is finished. 
and he was indicating there that he had finished the work that he had come to do and the penalty for sin had been paid in full it was done sin had been taken care of on the cross past action completed action with a resulting state of being it was done never to be paid for again now because of this he could pronounce to them peace peace now they could be at peace with God because of what Jesus had done before their sin had separated them from God and Romans 5.10 says that they were enemies of God we all are enemies of God we're not at peace with God we're enemies without what Christ did but before that, Romans 5.10, the bridge of all, if you want to know the secret of understanding Romans, the book of Romans, it's Romans 5.1, which says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before this, they weren't with peace with God. Now that Jesus has gone to the cross and died in their place so their sins might be forgiven, they can be at peace with God. And this peace was also something Jesus had pointed earlier uh, in two other places in the Gospel of John. Look with me at John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now right before this, he had told them he was leaving them. And they just couldn't get it. They, they didn't understand why would he leave? That's the worst thing that could happen to us. And he spends uh, all this time, they, they're together in the upper room and also traveling to Gethsemane together through the streets of Jerusalem explaining to them why it was so important and how he could say that he would leave them peace and a peace that's greater than the world gives. And then later on in the, in the same discourse in John 16, it says, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but that take courage, I have overcome the world. And remember the world in the Gospel of John is, is those who hate the Lord Jesus Christ. They hate the things of God. The evil around. He's overcome that. And because he's overcome that, they can now have peace. And in fact, Jesus repeats this phrase, peace be with you, three times in this passage that we looked at this morning. Now, when we see repeated phrases or words... There's probably an emphasis here. Remember they didn't have Microsoft Word or uh, um, Macintosh Pages, depending on what you like. I use Pages now. I've been converted. Um, but uh, uh, whatever it is, they didn't have bold, and they didn't have underline, and all that kind of stuff. And the way to get things across was to repeat it, to repeat it, to repeat it, to repeat it. Peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. And John, I believe, wants us to see that's a huge part of this passage. And it's more than just a greeting. You see, they now have, because of his death and resurrection, they can now be at peace with God. They have no reason to fear or be afraid of God. Now, they fear God in one sense, we respect him. But they have no reason to be afraid of the wrath of God on them anymore. Nor do they have reason to be afraid of man. Because now they are at peace with God. What can mere man do to them? nothing well do you have the peace with God are you at peace with God are you at peace with God it's a great question to ask yourself you are if by faith you have embraced what Christ did for you on the cross but if you're not if you haven't done that the Bible says that the wrath of God abides on you and you're an enemy of God 
Now, I don't know about you. I kind of like the other side of that. And I think you would too. But you've got to be honest. And are you at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let's move on here and look at verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Now, not only does he speak to them, but he also physically shows him, shows them that it's really him. He shows them his hands and his feet, and he also shows him shows them his side where he had been pierced, which would be very unique among those who have been crucified because the rest of them would not have a wound in their side. Just Jesus would be. He's the only one that had that wound. Uh, this again, along with his words, were to point to the fact that he had done just what he said he was going to do. He would rise again on the third day. He would give them the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish for three days. And then was out of the belly of the fish. It's a sign of Jonah. Resurrection. He promised that would happen, and he came through. So how did these men respond to Jesus' words and his presentation of his body that it was really him? Well, look at the rest of verse 20 in the last phrase. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Can you imagine? I mean, I can't. I, I try to, I'm trying to think. I put myself in, in these original disciples' feet. And, and what would that have been like? I can't even imagine it. I, really, I'll be honest. I cannot. I didn't walk with Jesus physically on the earth for three years. And I didn't watch him physically die on a cross and be stabbed and, and be buried in a tomb. I didn't watch that happen. But these men did. And here they are hiding out, wondering what is going on. And they've heard reports that, yes, he's, he's risen and, and from, from the, the women and maybe even Peter. And uh, all of a sudden he shows up. And he says, peace be with you. And he shows them his hands and feet and his side. I can't, I can't imagine exactly how they felt and, and, and what this would be exactly be like, like, but the scripture tells us what they did. They responded. Then they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I mean, pumped up as I get. I don't think I'm even close to as pumped up they were as where they were when they saw him standing there again. It was really him. And all the things he had taught them must have flooded their mind and flooded their hearts. And it says they rejoiced. They rejoiced. Joy filled their hearts. Jesus had conquered sin and death and Satan. Before his death, think about this. Before Jesus' death, they did not want him to die, did they? No, Lord, no. And now, they were glad he did. Death had become sweet to them. It had been a cry of victory. Jesus had earlier said to these men that rejoicing would be their ultimate response. Now they couldn't understand that prior to this, but now they're understanding what Jesus meant in John 16, 20 through 22. Look there with me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Because she has, her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she is no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Maybe these very words flooded their mind and flooded their heart as Jesus now stood before them and they rejoiced. 
Jesus once again kept his promise. They were reaping, but now after the resurrection, they are rejoicing with joy unspeakable. Now, let's continue here in verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, this is John's great commission. Each of the Gospels, at near the end of the Gospel, has a great commission where God sends them out. Uh, we're, 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 you know, the Lord Jesus speaks to them and, and sends them out into the world after he is risen. And this is John's great commission passage. You see, Jesus didn't just come on this earth to live and die and be buried and rise again for his followers just to stand around rejoicing with each other. Well, let's just stay right here, guys, in the room, and this is kind of fun. Just think about the way we're feeling and, and, and the excitement of the, the, the moment. Let's just stay here. Keep the door shut. That's not why Jesus came, and that's not what he asked him to do. He didn't say, hey, guys, just hang out. And then when I return a long time from now, I'll come back and get you guys and let the rest of them burn. It's not what Jesus says here. He commands them to be used to accomplish the mission which he came to do through them. He just desires not only for them to have joy, but what? For others to have joy too. Let the nations be glad, God said. Not just a few. Well, Jesus didn't give these men a chance to sit around and ask the question, now what? What, what do we do now? What's God's will for my life? He didn't give them an opportunity to ask the question. He answered it before they could even ask it. Uh, this is God's will for these original disciples. That they go. He sends them out. Do you know what... Uh, do you want to know what God's will is for every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? We've mentioned it already. Is that we go. That be, we be ones who are sent. Now notice how he sends them. In what manner does he send them? It says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So there's some relation and comparison he wants them to think about. The way that God sent me, I'm sending you in the same way. How did the Father send the Son? He sent him in love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. He sent them for the benefits. He sent Jesus for the benefit of others. Jesus died not for what he got out of it, but for what we got out of it. He sent him to suffer. He suffered like no other man. And in Isaiah 52 it says, he was marred more than any man. And they should not expect anything less since they were sent in the same way. And guess what? They all did suffer. All of them died a martyr's death except for John. And he was exiled because of his love for Jesus to the island of Patmos. They all suffered. They were to be sent in the same way. They were sent to bring peace. We may have peace with God, right? They were sent that others may have joy. Because Jesus was sent that we might have peace. And Jesus was sent that we might have joy. That's the way in, that we were, in which they were sent. His commission was clear. And it's still clear today. When the disciples considered the t task of taking the message to the world, it must have been daunting, it must have been overwhelming, and they must have thought, this is impossible. How can we take this message all over the place and we got people out there who want to kill us? How could this be? Well, Jesus knows that once again, he cuts them off the pass. Uh, look at verse 22. What he says in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, 
receive the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus was not sending them to accomplish this task in their own power. Sometimes people don't see how this connects. It's, it's just really, if you really look at it, this is exactly what he's talking about. I'm sending you, so hey, here's the Holy Spirit. He told them the Holy Spirit would come and dwell them when he goes to the Father. He told them earlier in John. Now this verse has been the source of much, let me say this, friendly debate. Not heated debate, friendly debate among Christians. What exactly happened here? It says he breathed, and actually on them is not in the text. It just says he breathed. Now, you could take it, he breathed on them, or you could just say he breathed. Uh, we, we don't really know for sure the context can point to that, but what does it mean that he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit? And what happened here in relation to the Holy Spirit and disciples? How does this fit in with Acts chapter 2, right? The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and empowered them to, to share the gospel and speak in other languages, and other people came to know Christ, and their hearts were changed because of the work of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Was this fulfillment of, of Jesus' promise that he made back to them, uh, back, back in, made, made to them earlier in John 14, 16 through 17? This is what he said. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not know him or no, does not see him nor know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Earlier in John, uh, he, he, he speaks of the spirit and when he does the water ceremony, I mean, you'll remember that um, uh, during the Feast uh, of Tabernacles, and he does this amazing water ceremony. It points to the Holy Spirit, and he alludes to the fact that the Holy Spirit has never indwelt anyone up to that point, has never come and dwelt inside permanently. And he says that him coming is pointing toward the day, the promise that God made one day, the Spirit will dwell in you. Right? Many times in John, another time is in John 16, 7. He says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Speaking about, I'm going to go to the Father. For I do not go away, but if I do not go away, the help will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, some argue that Jesus' words here in, in John 20, 22 are the fulfillment of this promise. That the Holy Spirit comes and permanently indwells the disciples now. While others say it was either a partial fulfillment or a symbolic parable pointing to the fulfillment of the giving of the Spirit in Acts 2 where that was finally realized. Now I'm not convinced that the Holy Spirit indwells these disciples fully here. I'm not convinced of that argument. Let me tell you why. You should know, you should want to know, right? Right? I better defend what I believe. Drew's saying yes. Like, okay, I'll talk to you, Drew. I'm kidding. Alright, so you should know, why do I believe? I don't feel that they believe they were, this was the fulfillment of the promise of the Spirit to permanently indwell these guys. Here's why. If they were truly indwelt, then why do we find them still hiding out and afraid in verse 26? After Pentecost in Acts 2, they're ready to take the world. They're willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. But in, in, in verse 26 of this very passage, we find them still hiding. They're still behind closed doors. Eight days later, they're still behind closed doors. They're still afraid. And also, since Thomas was not with them, did he have to wait till Pentecost to receive the Holy Spirit to indwell him? He wasn't with them, right? Did, we don't see that he was with them. and We'll, we'll see that here in the passage. There's this other ten. Did he miss out and, and have to go through 50 days without the Holy Spirit? And, well, it would be minus eight, so minus seven, actually, because the Jews counted two Sundays. That's what it says, eight days, only a week. But, so it would be, be 43 days without having the Holy Spirit dwell him, and all the other guys got him. I don't think that's the case. 
I, I think that um, it's either a partial fulfillment, that, that it's almost like a, a downposit of the Holy Spirit um, that looks forward to Acts 2 and Pentecost when they would be indwelt with the Holy Spirit to empower them to do the work that he had called them to, or it's entirely a parable that looks forward to Acts 2. I don't think that they received the Holy Spirit and he indwelt them the same way that happened in Acts. And I think the proof's in the pudding. Their lives really changed in a way dramatically after Acts chapter 2. I'm not saying they didn't change some here and that they weren't believers in Christ. We know that already because he said they were believers. They were of him and in him at this point. And obviously the Holy Spirit has to be working in all that. But that, that's why I say um, I think that it's either a partial fulfillment to be fulfilled in Acts or it's just pointing to Acts 2. Um, now, the three of you that, that were interested in hearing that, you now you know why, right? I'm kidding. Well, the important thing here, and I think this is the, 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 what we want to stress, the important thing here that John points to, he's stressing that this is that, that it's a fulfillment, all right? It's how they're going to fulfill his sending. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so he will empower you that you can obey my call for you to be sent, to, to go, and preach the gospel. That's the important part of the passage. And you see that just from the context. He not only commands them to go to do the impossible. Reminds them that when the Holy Spirit will live in them. He will empower them to make the impossible possible. Isn't that good news? I mean it's still a daunting task. It's still impossible when we think about it. That we would go and take the gospel to the world. But he makes the impossible possible. By sending God the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to indwell them. What then is the, me the message that they were delivered when they go? Look at verse 23. I mean, he gives it all right here. It's just, it's just amazing when you look at this passage. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now look at those phrases, have been forgiven them. They have been retained. Now both of these are in the perfect all right. Now, if you've been around here a little bit I'll br while, you'll understand that I bring this up a lot because it's important. The perfect is pointing to a past action, right, of forgiveness that has already happened, that is re already it's it, it's already been bought, and it has a result that goes on forever. So he says they have been forgiven, and then he also says they have been retained. Not only are they both perfect, but this is really important. They're both passive. He's not saying that the disciples have the ability to forgive sins. They have been forgiven, passive, someone else working on it, not them forgiving. God is the one working. He's the only one to forgive sin. They even said this to Jesus when he said, your sins are forgiven. They said, hold on, God's the only one who can forgive sin. God is the one who forgives, and what they are doing is they're proclaiming forgiveness. And where does that come? When they preach the gospel of Jesus, those who believe will be forgiven, right? Those who don't believe will not be forgiven. That's what he's saying. You'll have the power to go out and proclaim who's forgiven. And how will they know who's forgiven? By how they respond to the message of the gospel. That Jesus died for your sins. Will you repent and believe in Jesus? Yes. Forgiven. No. Retained. Or not forgiven. That's what he's saying. This is a message. It's a message of forgiveness. Jesus had made it clear here in this passage what his will was for them in sending them out in the world. He had made it clear that he would send them, he would give them the power to fulfill it, and he gave them the message to present. Now let's look at verses 24 and 25. But Thomas, uh-oh, where'd been Thomas been? One of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them 
when they came. Now, verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails, put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, what do we know about Thomas? Thomas most often gets wrongly looked down upon. And, and I'm going to show you it's wrong to look down upon Thomas. He does not deserve the title Doubting Thomas. The passage does not teach that. And if you've ever been taught that, you've been taught wrong. All right? And I've been taught wrong about this passage. It doesn't teach Doubting Thomas. And you'll, it's clear. Well, first of all, we know it's, it calls him Didymus. Uh, it means ditto. That's where we get the word ditto. Ditto, right? Ditto. So twin. And whose twin was, we don't know. Some people think it was Matthew, because on the other Gospels, every time Thomas is mentioned, it's with Matthew. But we don't know that for sure. Don't, don't go out of here and say, hey, Thomas was Matthew's twin. Maybe, all right? But he's, he's a twin, all right? Earlier in John 11, when they were getting ready to be, go back to Bethany, due to Lazarus' sickness, which led to death, they didn't know he was dead quite yet, but he had been persecuted, and they wanted, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus at the time. So they're saying, Dude, let's don't go back there, because they want to kill you. Why do you want to go back there, Jesus? And, and Thomas says, let us also go that we might die with him. What, a, what an optimist, Thomas. But no, it just shows his love for Jesus. I'm willing to die with you. I love Jesus so much, I'm willing to die. Where were the rest of the guys? Who else is crying out, let's go die with him? Thomas cried out because he loved him so much. In chapter 15, when Jesus tells him he's going to go away, Thomas shows his desire to go wherever Jesus is going. Jesus, wherever you're going, I want to be there. Wherever that might be. I need some help, though. And this is what he says in John 14, 5. This is Thomas. He says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? You see the eagerness of Thomas? He just wants to be with Jesus. He doesn't understand exactly what's going on, but he wants to be with Jesus. He loved Jesus. He was passionate about his love for Jesus. Yet for some reason, he was not here on this first Sunday evening with the other disciples. We don't know why, and there's no reason to speculate why. It doesn't tell us. Well, notice what it says in verse 25. It says about the disciples, they were saying. This is their initial obedience to Jesus sending them to proclaim the gospel. They told it to Thomas, didn't they? Way to go, guys. Well, they're still fearful hiding out, but at least they told somebody. And that's, a good, that's good news. Evidence that they really believed and that's who he really was. They proclaim it to Thomas. Now, Thomas responds by saying he must see for himself. Oh, doubting Thomas. You ought to just write in your margin right there. They missed it. They should have put Doubting Thomas in there, right? Now, before we get too hard on Thomas, think about this. Surely if Thomas would have been there with the other ten, he would have believed just like they did. They saw. And he's just asking to see the same thing they saw. Why don't we get on Thomas? He's this is so important. This is what he's saying. This is, this is so important, I've got to see it myself. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if you guys are wrong, then he was a liar. And he was crazy. He was a lunatic. He wasn't Lord. And this is too important for me just to take your guys' word for it. I love you guys, but I'm just going to take your word for it. I need to see it myself. What's wrong with that? They saw it. So why don't we get on Thomas? He just wanted to see it because it was so important. It would change his life. He wanted to be sure. And there's nothing wrong with that, that he would seek that this was true. If he's going to believe, he's going to believe personally. That's why I think it's wrong to refer to him as Doubting Thomas. And look at verse 26. After, the, 
After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came to the doors. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. So they're still hiding out here, as we see. Again, Jesus says, Peace be with you, reminds them that they have peace now with God. And then in verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Reach out, reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus wasn't present. This is, this is really, look, look, look at this. Jesus was not present when he came and showed them his hands and feet inside, was he? But he knew Thomas who requested that. I wonder how. Because Jesus is God. He didn't have to be there to listen to Thomas say, I want to see it. He could just show up and know that Thomas said it. This along with the fact that he did see his resurrected body and his hands and his side let, led Thomas to say what he says in verse 28. The Lord answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. What a statement. What a statement. Thomas ought to be the hero in this passage, not the goat. I'm not saying they didn't say this, but it, it, John emphasizes that Thomas had been so changed by seeing... It doesn't say that he touched him. He probably didn't even need that. Now he saw him. Whoa! That's all he needed. And he says, my Lord and my God, and it echoes back to the very beginning of John. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's just proclaiming this. The Word, which became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14 of chapter 1. The Word was God. My Lord and my God. Jesus was indeed the Lord who created the world. He was the Lord who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He was the Lord who appeared to Abraham. He was the Lord that took the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. He was the Lord who called David to be king. He was the Lord who disciplined his children because he loved him. He was the Lord who sent his son to die on the Christ, who was also God in the flesh. You see here, you must personally plus, place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Thomas did. And notice that it doesn't say, it's not your Lord and your God. It says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him, does he? No, you're wrong. No, I'm not really God. No, he embraces it because he is. This is a statement of all those who believe. My Lord and my God. You see, I don't know where this came in, and, 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 and I'm not saying that any of you believe it, but if you ever hear it, please lovingly correct somebody. You don't trust Jesus as Savior and then later on make him your Lord. It's a package deal. And who makes him Lord anyway? He is Lord. We never make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. He's the Lord of our life. Now, we sometimes don't act like it, right? But that doesn't make him less of a Lord. He's the Lord. He's Savior and Lord. It's not one or the other. Okay, okay. I come when I was 12 years old, and I walked down the aisle, and he was my Savior. And I lived like hell for 20 years. Then I, then I came down the aisle again, and now he's my Lord. No, he was your Lord the whole time. You may just not have submitted to him, and maybe you weren't even saved in the first place. But he's always the Lord. He's Lord. Now look at verse 29. And Jesus' response to, to Thomas' exclamation, exclamation. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. Now, the, for Jesus' first statement is, there's no, understand this, there's no punctuation in the Greek. We add it. 
okay, to help us read it. And, and I don't think that, and, 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 I'm, and I'm good standing with other people, I don't think that it calls for a question mark here. I do not believe that, based upon the context of this Christian. It's not, it's not a rebuke of Peter. I mean, of, of Thomas. It's not a rebuke of Thomas. It's a statement uh, that Thomas saw and believed, just like the other ten. You've seen and you believed. And Jesus, then he goes on and says, Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Jesus, however, wants to make sure that those who have not physically seen the risen Christ do not feel second class. Well, we saw him and you didn't. No, blessed are those too. Just like you're blessed, Thomas, and all those others who saw me and believed. They're blessed. He doesn't say, well, you're second class because you saw me. They're blessed, and those who don't see and believe, they're blessed as well. And D.A. Carson, I think... Uh, explains this well. He says, blessed then are those who cannot share Thomas's experience of sight, but who in part because they read of Thomas's experience come to share Thomas's faith. Is our relationship with Christ any less than Thomas's? No. No. And I really believe that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think it's a rebuke. Uh, Thomas believed and in, in reflecting on his belief, look, look at John's, what John writes in John 30, um, Verse 30 and 31, John 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But, we, but these things have been written so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. This is John's purpose statement, which we've talked about all through the book for John. These signs, which he talks about, with the, the last and greatest being the resurrection, that was the greatest sign, were presented along with the explanation. All the signs were explained in order to... To point, Jesus, to point to Jesus as the, being the Christ, the Son of God, and others might believe. John says he records them, right? So they would believe that. And John wants us to know who, who those who read and hear this gospel, be, they, he wants us to be a part of those that did not see but are blessed. That's what he's saying. It, it's a connection here with verse 29. In 28 and 29. Uh, the, the believing John spoke of... Uh, of the, the believing he spoke of here was not just acknowledgement of believing the right things or understanding some doctrinal truth or having sound theology, but believing that results in life. You see, true belief always results in life. And J Jesus promised this in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Believing the truth of the gospel, believing on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection will always lead to life. Christians are the only ones who truly have life. We say that again. Christians are the ones who truly have life. The only ones. And this happens when a person cries out like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Life. It's evidence of life. It's the statement of life. Well, let's now just consider briefly here how we can obey this passage like the disciples, including Thomas, did. First, for those of you who have responded to Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and, and have cried out like Thomas, my Lord, my God, I have three ways that we all need to respond together in order to be, be in God's will. First, it's real simple. Here it is. You're going to write this down. Go. Point number one. Go. Go. He sends them out. Jesus' words to the original disciples, as the Father sent me, I also send you. As a follower of Jesus, we are two being sent. This is God's will for your life. Sent ones. In order to obey Jesus and be in God's will, we must go. We must go in a certain way as the Father sent Jesus. 
in love, for the benefit of others, to suffer. Those who choose to live godly lives will be persecuted, Paul writes to Timothy. To bring peace, to bring joy. We must go and we must go in that way. Secondly, go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus not only commands us to go, but to, to be in God's will, but to be in God's will to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who trusts in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, my Lord and my God, as Thomas said, now has the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling them to empower them to go. And Jesus reminded the disciples of this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even in the remotest part of the earth. They will have the power of the Holy Spirit in them to fulfill their call to be witnesses, to be sent ones. To be in God's will, we must go in the power of the Spirit. Thirdly, go in the power of the Spirit. So I'm just adding on to this. Go to the, in the power of the Spirit with the message of the gospel. Go in the power of the Spirit with the message of the gospel. Jesus told the original disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And he sends us with the same message. The very same message they had. The message of the gospel of the gospel is that Jesus' death, burial and resurrection provides forgiveness which brings joy and peace and life. Begin today being in God's will. Go in the power of the Spirit with the message of the gospel. Now there's many practical ways we can do this. I'm going to give you one right now. If you're not doing anything this Thursday at 6 o'clock sweetheart 5 5.30, Yeah, okay. Anytime that evening, you come to our house and you can help us minister to everybody who comes to our house and is, they won't knock on the door because we're going to be out to receive them. Because this is the only night in our country where all these people come to your house. You don't have to go door knocking. They knock on yours. All right? That's a pretty good deal. And we're going to have blow-ups and give away food, but more than that, we're going to be there to share the gospel. We're going to give tracts to every single person with the gospel message, take the opportunity as their kids are jumping in the jumpy thing and eating and playing games to introduce ourselves and tell them why we're doing this and let them know that, that God has sent his son to die in your place that you might be forgiven. It's a great way. Come and join us. Many ways we can do that this week. Now for those who have never responded to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection like Thomas by crying out, my Lord and my God, I've, got, I've only got one point for you. Not Go but come. Come. Come admitting that God is holy and you are sinful and guilty. And because of that, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death and you will have an eternal death of separation in a place called hell from God forever. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love by which he loved you sent Jesus to die and take the penalty you deserved. Embrace. Come and embrace his offer of forgiveness. And receive his life by joining Thomas and crying out, My Lord and my God. Then. Then. When you come. Then you can go in the power of the Spirit with the message of the gospel. And it's the greatest joy on earth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this pointed message from your word, from your son, to those who follow him, that we are called to go in the power of the Spirit 
with the message of the gospel which brings life and peace and forgiveness and joy unspeakable. Lord, I pray you'd work in all our hearts to respond properly this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.